Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with lifted hands. We praise you for the ability to worship you. We ask your presence among us. Help us to grow closer to you each day, Lord. Thank you for loving us, for sending Jesus to rescue us from the sins that we could commit. We thank you for that. We praise you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. The last time I stood up here, I guess it was about three weeks ago now, we started a series on the book of Ruth. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to start a series and then take a couple weeks off, but hey, that's the way I did it. So there's a story widely considered to be the greatest short story in all of the Bible. And since it's been a couple weeks, let's, let's, let me give you a recap of the story and where it's taken us so far. So in the days of the judges, a Jewish man leaves Bethlehem, a city in the promised land to escape a famine that was taking place there. And the famine that had been brought on to the people, it may have been brought on because of their disobedience. Maybe God was trying to get their attention. Or it may have just been a time of testing in, in God's provision, a faith-building exercise. But Whatever it was, this guy neither repented or stayed true to God in trust. He simply flees. Even worse, he goes to a place called Moab, known for its opposition to Jerusalem and to the God of Israel. And he took his wife Naomi and their two sons with him, and things just did not go well. First, he dies. Then, after marrying Moabite women, his two sons die, leaving his wife Naomi a widow, alone, without any means of support, and with her two daughters-in-law. So here you have Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth, three women, three widows. And the way women, particularly widows, were treated in that day and age they were left wide open to poverty and to exploitation. It was not a good start to their story. So what happens next? Let's, let's find out. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed the people in Judah by giving them good crops again. So Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. So here we find two interesting developments. First, God proved faithful to the people in Israel by ending the famine and providing them food. And second, Naomi decides to leave Moab and to go back home to Bethlehem. She, she really had no choice. It was a patriarchal society. Everything for a woman depended on a father, a brother, a husband, or a son. And at her age, her parents likely were dead. No, there's no mention of them being alive, much less the existence of any brothers. Her husband was dead. Both of her sons were dead. Her hopes of remarriage were just about non-existent because she was well past childbearing age. 
And in that day, being able to bear a child, particularly a son, was everything. She and her family fled instead of staying and trusting in God. And what happened? They ran right into the nightmare, death, and now poverty, while, while, they while those who stayed true in Israel saw the famine end and found God to be faithful. See, if you stop there and you take Naomi off to the side, you can say, well, Naomi, let's, let's add all this up. You fled faith in God. You went to a place you shouldn't have gone. Everything went south in the worst possible way because you didn't do what God wanted you to do, which was to stay and to be faithful to him. So Naomi, what lesson have you learned? What, what is a life lesson for you? You're heading back to Israel to start a new chapter in your life. So what's the life lesson? Because there is one. One that she should have gotten, and it's, quite frankly, one that we all need to get. And before I give it to you, keep in mind that by nature, we are self-protecting, self-serving people. Okay, maybe you're not. But, but left to my basic instincts, I am. Which means that when I'm faced with adversity, when I'm faced with conflict or the possibility of calamity, my first instinct can be to turn to my own resources, my own thinking, my own way of escape or of protection, no matter what that might involve, instead of asking first, what is it that God would have me to do? What is it that would most honor God? What is it that would prove to have the most faith in God, in the areas he's asked me to be faithful. You see, the famine hit Israel, and Naomi and her family fled, and they got out of it what, what they were trying to escape in the first place, misery and misfortune. And she hears that God was, in fact, faithful to those who remained faithful to him. So she heads back. Hopefully, with a life lesson learned, one that, again, we all need to learn. So, so here it is. The safest place you can ever be is in the center of God's will. Let me say it again. The, the safest place you can ever be is in the center of God's will. See, we try to outthink God. We try to take matters into our own hands, and it never works the way we think it should. See, we'll, we'll have to see if that's even occurred to Naomi, or whether she's just fleeing one more time. She fled out of Bethlehem, and now she's fleeing out of Moab. Has she learned anything? Well, let's keep reading. But on the way... Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back to your mother's homes, and may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said. We want to go with you to your people, 
But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who could grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters. Return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and to bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughter. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. Let's stop there. See, there's two ways that you can read this. One way makes Naomi look good, and the other way makes her look not so good. And if you read this in the way that puts Naomi in a good light, then you you see this as a sign of Naomi's selfless love for her daughters-in-law. Even though it would mean that she would be alone, which with with no one to take care of her, not even those daughters-in-law, she encourages them to do what's best for them to stay in Moab, to be with their families of origin, free from the life of their dead husband's mother. Very much free to marry again, to have a life that she could no longer have, to begin a new life. So maybe you're thinking, this is a great mother-in-law, a wonderful human being. She's selfless, generous, gracious, thinking only the best interests of these two young women. And if I'm honest, that's how I've often read this story. That she was doing a selfless act by trying to look out for her daughters-in-law. But that's not the only way to read it. And remember, Moabites and Israelites weren't exactly friends. In fact, they were often enemies. Moab had severely mistreated Israel in the past and even invaded and cruelly occupied that country for an 18-year period. Not only had Naomi fled to Moab with her husband and her sons, but her sons then married Moabite women. That's who Orpah and Ruth were. They were Moabites. This was so frowned on, so denounced, that any children from such a marriage would be kept from the practice of the Jewish faith for ten generations. That's how hated the Moabites were. So how do you think Naomi, returning to Israel with a couple of Moabite daughters-in-law, was going to go over? Probably like a lead balloon. So you could easily read this as Naomi wanting to shed the baggage before she got home. To get these two young Moabite women out of her life. Certainly before she returned back to Israel. And if you read it this way, this wasn't a selfless act, but a selfish one. It was bad enough that she and her husband had left Israel and had gone to Moab. But to have her sons marry Moabite women would be even worse. And now having to return home, having lost everything with two Moabite daughters-in-law, it would be unthinkable. 
even if it meant knowingly sending them back to a pagan land to continue to worship false gods, essentially saying, I don't care. I just don't want your baggage any longer. So which way should we read it? Was she being gracious and loving, or was she trying to cover up her own sin and disobedience? See, that, see, that's one of the fun things about a good story. Sometimes you can read it from different angles. And I think we'll get some more hints about the way Miss, about Miss Naomi a little bit later, but right now, I think everything we know about her points to this being a self-serving act. We know the other members of her family, her husband and her sons, were not in a faithful relationship with God. They shouldn't have left Israel, but they did. They shouldn't have married Moabite women, but they did. Now, if Naomi was a subject to her husband in all of this, maybe she was just a silent protester. Well, then she could have gone home, back to Israel the moment her husband died to try to set things right. But she didn't. In fact, she didn't even think about going home until she heard that it would be beneficial to do so, that there was something good happening there that she might be able to take advantage of. The same reason she left Israel for Moab now seems to be the motivating factor for her to now leave Moab and to go back to Israel. It's like she was just following the money or the food, as the case may be. And while it seems like she was wanting to help her daughters-in-law, however, to send them back to their families and their families' worship of false gods was not something that anyone who believed and followed the one true God, the living God. It's not something that anyone who was in that position would ever do. Sending them back home to marry Moabite men was cutting them off from going with her, which, which they wanted to do, and joining in the faith of the people of Israel in that worship of the one true God, they said they wanted that, and she's trying to send them back into paganism. And then, did you notice that last line? Let's read it again. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. That's her view of God. That with all of her family's choices against God, that were dismissive of God, that were rebellious against God, she now plays the victim card. Everything that had happened to her was now God's fault. It was his fist raised against her. Again, that's a sign of her being very focused on herself, bitter, always the victim, never seeing the problem as being her own. 
never seeing herself as the cause of anything wrong or bad in her life. Just the one that God is being mean to, which is, of course, completely alien to the nature and to the character and to the heart of God. God is not some vindictive, revenge-seeking being. Yet we can sin against him and bring about the consequences of our sin. But any idea that, that he's just raising his fist arbitrarily to blindside us is completely foreign to who he is and his love towards us. So again, to me, this reads like someone giving in to a self-absorbed bitterness and self-pity, seeing the death of her husband and her sons as the unprovoked work of God against her. So when, when reading this and trying to determine whether Naomi is this good and godly and nurturing woman, or as we talked about in a previous sermon series, a hot mess, so far, I think we can lean towards her being a hot mess. But we'll find out more in just a minute. But, but first come the decisions of her daughters-in-law. And our first real glimpse into this person named Ruth. Let's keep reading. And again, they wept together. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that, that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. In those verses, you have some of the most famous lines in this story. They've been used ever since they were recorded as the essence of a committed friendship. The picture of loyalty, the power and resolve of love. They've been recited during weddings. They've been put on cards. And as we're going to see in a little while, they've been sung in songs. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Ruth meant it. It was so sincere, so powerful, that even Naomi had no response but to let her live out her life with her. And to have whatever hindrances that might come in Israel to go ahead and to come their way. But, but let's dig in a bit more into what we just read. Both daughters were initially willing to go. Ruth gets all the praise in this story, but don't miss Orpah's willingness 
to go as well. She was emotionally upset about leaving Naomi, but she did what she was told to do. And in that day and age, submission to your elders, to your family, was considered noble and virtuous. Naomi was now the head of that family, and she told Orpah that she should go back to her first home. Orpah didn't do anything wrong in this story. What's tragic is that Naomi didn't do more to present the God of Israel to Orpah. Instead, she acknowledges that, that Orpah was going back to her family's pagan gods and that Ruth should do the same thing. But here's where we start to learn even more about Ruth. Ruth didn't leave for the pagan gods, not in disobedience to Naomi, but because of the kind of woman that she was, or at least had become. Let's start piecing together the parts of the picture that we've already been given about this remarkable young woman. First, we see raw, selfless, complete commitment to the family of her husband. Even when she had been formally released and encouraged to return home after his death, she could have remarried. But instead, knowing that it would surely mean never getting remarried, for it was doubtful that any Jewish man in Israel would choose to marry a Moabite woman, she still chose to stay with Naomi. But not simply out of a family commitment. There was something else going on here. We learn that Ruth had become a believer and a follower of the God of Israel. Her desire to stay with Naomi was not simply to be committed, but to go with her to Israel, where she could worship the living God and to become a part of the people of God. Naomi's God, whether Naomi followed him or honored him herself, had become Ruth's God. And only Ruth's faith was sincere, real, and alive. What's more, the name that she uses is not just God in general terms, but Yahweh. She used Israel's name for this God, showing that she had chosen this God for herself. She was naming him the God over all the false pagan gods that she was raised with in her homeland. But that's, but that's not all. She's attaching herself to a God who Naomi says has raised his fist against her. You can imagine Ruth wondering if it meant that maybe he would raise his fist against her as well. But to, but to Ruth, it doesn't matter. She wants this God. She chooses this God. She believes the best about this God. Now let's compare the two women. Not Orpah and Ruth, but Naomi and Ruth. Naomi knew God and of his faithfulness, of his provision throughout Israel's history, yet she abandoned trust in him. Trust 
in the promised land at the first sign of rough water for selfish gain and self-protection. Ruth didn't know all that much about this God and had only known heartache. She knew nothing of Yahweh's history of faithfulness, but chose to believe him to be faithful. She came to believe and to trust him during a time of loss and despair. Naomi was going home to her people and her God for the sake of trying to find a better life. Ruth was choosing, was choosing to go to Israel, knowing that it would not be a better life that she would be an outcast, probably would never be able to remarry, then she was turning her back on the only hope of a good life. Her only hope of a good life was back in Moab. Naomi felt that God was against her. Ruth felt that God was not only for her, but also for Naomi. Do you see the difference between these two women and how remarkable and how deep Ruth's faith is in comparison to Naomi's. This puts her confession of a commitment in an all-new light. This isn't primarily a friendship thing or a marriage thing. The way it's often used and pulled out of that language that we read. This is something that is primarily flowing from the heart of a woman who has fallen in love with God and is going to pursue God no matter what it means to her personally. In her mind, she probably thinks it's probably not going to be all that good for me over there. But my love and my worship and my heart for God trumps everything else. Her commitment to Naomi is not just to Naomi, but also about her commitment to God. She wanted to be with God's people, to live in God's land. But just, just in case you think I might have been judging Naomi a, a bit too harshly, let's read on and find out whether these hints about her character and her attitude and her spirituality are fair. So the two women continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited about their arrival. Is it, is it really Naomi? The women asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? It's official. Naomi is a hot mess. She gets home and she says that she left there happy and full. She was fleeing a famine. And then the first thing out of her mouth when she gets back is to tell the people that they ought to call her, call her Mara instead of Naomi. Mara means bitter. Then she tears into God. God has made life bitter for me. He's brought me home empty. God has caused me to suffer. 
God has sent tragedy upon me. That's how she was viewing God. She really missed out on learning the big life lesson that should have come her way considering all that she had done and all that had happened as a result. Her life wasn't made bitter. She had become bitter. She was blaming God for a series of self-inflicted wounds. But that's, that's easy to do, isn't it? We do that all the time. Getting angry and bitter at God for how our life turns out when God had nothing to do with the mistakes that we make. One of the most important conversations that you can have with people who aren't Christians yet or maybe still exploring Christianity, one of the most important things you can do is that they often have this list that form a barrier between them and the possibility of, of, of considering a relationship with God because of all the bad things that have happened either to this world or in their own life. And the first reaction they always have is to blame God, to put God on trial. And the truth is that God is not behind what is tragic in this world, much less responsible for it people are you and i are responsible gk chesterton once wrote in response to a request from the london times for an essay on the topic here's the topic what's wrong with the world and he responded this way dear sir in response to your article what's wrong with the world i am that was the end of the essay Philip Yancey, a writer who has invested much of his life exploring these types of issues, was contacted by a television producer after the death of Princess Diana to appear on a show to explain how God could have possibly allowed such a tragic accident to occur. And he asked the producer this, could it have had something to do with a drunk driver going 90 miles an hour in a narrow tunnel? How exactly is that God's fault? Yancey reflected on the pervasive nature of the mindset that our actions are actually somehow an indictment on God. This is vintage Naomi stuff here. I do this, it blows up, so I blame God for it. Such as when boxer Ray Boom Boom Mancini killed a Korean boxer in a boxing match. He said in a press conference afterwards, sometimes I wonder why God does the things he does. Or in a letter to a Christian counselor, a young woman told of dating a man and becoming pregnant, and she wanted to know how God would allow something like that to happen to her. Or how in her official confession, South Carolina mother Susan Smith, who put her two kids in a car and pushed it into a lake for them to drown, she said afterwards that she went running after the car as it went down into the water saying, oh God, oh God, no. Why did you let this happen? What exactly was the role God played in a boxer killing his opponent? A teenager abandoning her virtue or a mother drowning her children? God let us choose, and we did. And our choices have consequences. 
Many times, those consequences bring about pain and heartache and destruction. Here's how one psychologist described it. We eat too much or gamble compulsively or allow pornography to control our minds. We drive too fast and work like there's no tomorrow. We challenge the boss disrespectfully and then blow up when he strikes back at us. We spend money we don't have and can't possibly repay. We fuss and fight at home and create misery. We toy with the dragon of infidelity. Then, when the wages of those sins and foolishness come due, we turn our shocked faces up to heaven and cry, Why me, Lord? In truth, we are suffering the natural consequences of the dangerous behavior that is guaranteed to produce pain. Which brings us to the end of Act 1 in the story of Ruth. And in this story, we, we come to a simple line. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrive in Bethlehem in late spring, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi returns as a woman with empty hands, an empty home, and an empty heart. And the, see, that is where we'll pick up the story next time, but, but while we introduce Ruth in a powerful and compelling way this week, don't forget the life lesson that, that was missed by someone who didn't shine in this story. It was missed by Naomi. But that life lesson was, again, that the safest place to be is always, it is always in the center of God's will. If you want that to be your life lesson today, if you want to always be in the center of God's will, will you stand as I pray with you? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we, as we look at this story, we, we focus on Naomi, but but Ruth is the one who showed us how to live, how to commit our lives to you. Even when she had no hope that there was actually anything good coming about it, she chose the hard path because she fell in love with you. She wanted to be at the center of your will. Help us to make that same choice. No matter what the consequences may be, help us to know that the safest place is always at the center of of your will. Help us to make that choice each and every day. In your name.